0: Hey guys, and welcome to the Life Oasis podcast. My name is Chaim Golaser, grief recovery specialist located in Brooklyn, New York. My name is Mati Gein, life coach located in Brooklyn, New York.
1: Welcome to today's episode with us today.
2: What, do you want to introduce him for this one? Why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Fitz. If the shoe fits, wear it, you know. <laughs> My name is Fitz Rabin, and uh, I'm a lover and a liver. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that expresses itself in all kinds of ways. I practice the craft of Stam, writing on a, by now on a pretty limited basis, but I've been doing that for 21 years. I teach the craft in an institution called Shiva Stam, which is great fun. Uh, I coach people to create who they are, to live from that place, and with powerful results that they want to create in their lives. Those are the three big things that I'm up to. Some side things as well
1: we dive a little bit more into that? What does it mean that you help people find out who they are? Poof.
2: You know, that's interesting because what I do with people, there's a magic that's created in the direct experience, in the conversation and direct experience of when I'm with someone. It's not something that's replicated when we talk about it, you know? That's the difference between that which is known experientially and viscerally versus that which is, you know, projected and conjecture, projection, conceptualization, knowing about something versus knowing something or being something. So, I'll do my best, you know, the words that you used are very interesting. You said to 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 put more meat on the bone about how I help people find out about who they are. See, I'm very sensitive to the language that people use because the language often kind of betrays, it kind of exposes a whole orientation that they're inside of like a frame of reference, or a world. So it's not being technical, or or like people say, oh, it's just semantics. It's not just like like pop psychology and positive theory, like you use different language, although there might be value to that too. It's more that when we speak, we actually, this the spoken word is like that which emerges into expression, it's that which is explicit. But there's always that which is kind of implicit, that which kind of fuels or vivifies that which was spoken. And that's what I mean by the orientation and the context, like kind of the world the person's in. It's not necessarily ex- being, emerging into a spoken word, into expression, but it's really fueling it all. I guess in a certain way you could think of it like like in a book, there's, there's content, right? There's words on the page. And, you know, most people, you, you open the book to read what's written on the page. That's what's explicit. What's implicit is the paper itself, right? The paper itself is blank but it's the field that catalyzes the words and facilitates the printing of the words and the expression of these words so in a similar way there's like the explicit of what we say but then there's like the implicit which is implied and can be seen from what we say so even though the expression find out who you are or who someone is it creates this orientation that you know i am something and that's coded somewhere in the universe, you know? Maybe it's like inscribed on like an ancient parchment that's like rolled up and tied up, hidden in a cave in the Judean hills. Or maybe it's in a sealed bottle at the bottom of the ocean, you know? But I am something. It's pre-existing, you know? And and then, But I need to find out who I am. I need to learn the information. And a lot of people, that's their orientation to identity. So they'll spend a lot of their life finding themselves, searching, therapy, spiritual searches, reading books, experimenting with different things because they're, they're, they're trying to find who they are. That's a very laborious, protracted and, and linear way of going about it, you know, and, and it's all in the hope it's it's all it's all it's all rides on the hope that one day you luckily encounter who you are you stumble on it and you find it and you're like oh this is what I was looking for I didn't know I'm a good guy I didn't know I'm artistic I did not know I'm creative I didn't know I'm powerful I didn't know I'm dynamic I didn't know I'm you know musical I didn't, now I know thank goodness the day has arrived I finally found it it's like oh it's like, you know, the whole search, the entire way of living is root based on that hope, you know, that one day that's what's going to happen. So I don't really do that. You know, it's not how I live and that's and not what I do with people. I teach as I play, you know, I'm not really interested in anyone having to find out who they are. What I ask people to do is make it up, right? Like we can do it right now. You know, who are you? Make it up. And And the interesting thing is that, you know, no one's ever made up. I'm an axe murderer. No one's ever made up. Like whenever when people respond to this question, right? For some reason, you know, while it sounds that to make it up would be completely arbitrary, right? Like, well, make it up. I I, I don't know. Based on what? How? Where? You know? It sounds like this is this is random. This is arbitrary. You know? What if I make up that I'm? I don't know. What if I make up that I'm a um what an Uber driver? Yeah. That what's going to become of me? You know? In this paradoxical way, this never happened. So when I ask people, this just happened, I'm just coming from a session right now that I was sitting with someone. I'm like, make it up. Who are you? And I give him a pencil. I say, write it on the wall. In my office, the wall is full of people's writings. He's like, the first thing he says, I am healing. I am connection. I am essence. I am intuition. I am deep inner knowing. And I'm sitting there watching him write this on the wall. You see? But moments before, he's like, yeah, well, that's why I'm here. I want to find out who I am. And I'm like, no, no, no. Let's not do no finding out stuff. Make it up. And then let's begin living as the expression of that and only that. So that's maybe a long answer to a short question. It's probably going to be a little characteristic of my answers. For me, no finding out who you are. There's making up who you are. It's nonlinear. It's from nothing. It's from your deepest inner knowing. Because you know what? Everyone knows deep down who they are somewhere inside of every living being knows the truth, somewhere. Sometimes that spark of the truth is extremely dim and covered over with a lot of clutter, all right? But that's what I do. I'm such a champion for people. I'm so clear about that spark that in my presence, it's kind of hard for them not to get connected with that spark. And that's what it is. It's about making up who you are. It's about creating who you are. It's about daring to articulate and speak and write on that wall who and what you are, right? Because most people know. They're just afraid. They're afraid to say, I'm a writer. They're afraid to say, I'm a public speaker. They're afraid to say, I'm a musician. They're afraid to say, I'm a successful shliak. They're afraid. What if it compromises people? What if people don't like it? What if people are jealous? What if people think it's arrogant? What if people, who am I to say? All these kinds of egoic lies that get in the way. So I don't, find out anything with anyone we make it up so you said
1: that there's a spark of truth yep and you said for some it's dim and for some it's brighter so for someone who's dim, what's the first step to making
2: that spark of truth a little brighter i don't know honestly i don't know what the first step is what i can say is stop seeking permission i don't know if that's the first step the last I, i don't know you know what i mean i don't have it in my awareness like a like a checklist like a first second third step stop asking permission most people and the truth is by the way I'll be perfectly honest I don't really know anything about most people there's seven billion of them you know for me to know something about most I'd have to know something about three and a half plus one billion people I have no idea about most people and that's important to me by the way because by owning that I actually don't know anything about most people it keeps me open so that when some new person interacts with me, I'm open. I'm not like, oh, you're one of most people, you know, like, oh, you're most people. No, no, I don't know anything about most people. So that's not just an anecdotal thing that I'm saying. That technically, I don't know anything about most people because I'd have to know things about billions of people to know something about most people. It's also it's a it's a state of being. It's a choice to let go of the positionality that I know something about most people, so that I'm not bound by a particular profile that i automatically project onto the person and rather i stay open so let's leave most people out but it seems that a lot of people they're looking for permission permission from the world permission from the community permission from society permission from their friends permission from their parents permission from their therapist permission from their rabbi permission from their coach permission from somewhere outside of their own self to dare claim that little spark to dare dust off some of the dust that's covering it over to dare excavate and clear out the garbage you know it's like oh i need a permit from the city to do that uh, construction job you know that demolition that excavation and permission who gave me permission stop asking for permission stop waiting for permission because the whole idea of permission just creates a world where your power is outsourced and elsewhere and, and that's just a lie. It's just a lie. You know, I think we're, we're all divine. That spark is a spark of divinity. Divinity, we talk about God, and we talk about God, like, in the most essence way, as mitzi usay Meats musay. He's made of himself, which, of course, makes an absolutely no sense in linear logic, because if how could something make themselves? If they existed to make themselves, Then then they had, then they already made, it's impossible. It's a non-linear possibility. It's a possibility that lies outside of the domain of ordinary thinking, ordinary logic, sequential thinking, you know, Newton's paradigm of causality, this causes that, causes that. So the essence then of divinity, the essence of the, if I can say, of the divine phenomenon, okay, and everything is an expression of that phenomenon, right, is that it's, It's permissionless. Its power lies in itself, of itself, from itself to itself. So that's what I can say. Anyone who wants to expand on that spark, allow it to shine forth and radiate in their awareness, in their consciousness, in the world. Stop asking for permission because to ask for permission is to violate the fundamental quality of that spark, of the fundamental quality being permissionlessness. The fundamental quality being mitzi, usame, atsmuse. The fundamental quality being that it has everything it ever needs in and of itself. So you begin to bring it forth by dropping the idea of permission. That itself actually begins to bring it forth, begins to have that spark occupy more of one's own awareness. I like that. I really like that. And Allowing. I think that's the word that like popped out
0: so many times when you're speaking. It's about allowing yourself to be who you are instead of seeking this external. I don't know if the right word for it is maybe validation, maybe something else, but something external to sort of stabilize or to allow me to be who I am. And that's what this asking of permission seems to manifest itself into or manifest itself from more like it. But the question that I want to ask is, why do you think people seek for permission in the first place? What are people trying to achieve
2: by asking for permission that makes them ask for permission? If I'm going to be perfectly honest, I will say that I think this is the divine design. It's like the whole game, okay? The whole game of this plane, of existence, of life as we know it on this plane. I'm not talking about angelic... Planes, planes of disembodied spirits. This plane, particularly on this earthly life, which is, I think, fair to say that it's the most prone to duality, to illusion, to distortion, the most confined in time and space. I think that's like the whole game. The game is that our spirits show up over here and we arise over here on this plane. And, you know, there's all kinds of frequencies and all kinds of forces and all kinds of energies that are at play that, so to speak, conceal, that attempt to conceal, that are designed to conceal on the divinity of this whole place. Like, that's the game. It's literally, it's a game. It's straight up, like, it, there's a game to be played over here, you know? You, you got a few years, you, do, you, you play your part, and then you're off stage, right? So it seems to me that It's not like, why, like, oh, because they were traumatized as a kid. Like, why, oh, because there's some hidden psychotic fault line that's acting on most people and some kind of pathology. No, no. This is the like the whole game. This is like the whole situation that's going on. There's divinity, not only a spark of divinity in every single human being. Divinity is that which vivifies all. Everything is an expression and manifestation of divinity. Divinity is, is. It's like the only thing that actually has inherent beingness so anything that bees or is right borrows let's just say borrows from the source of all is you can't get away from it you know there's no other raw materials so but but the game on this the way this this place is set up is that it's all concealed it's all hidden from view it's all hidden from consciousness from awareness a lot of it a lot of it is in and there's work involved in peeling away the layers, in refining one's perspective, one's view, until one becomes more and more and more aligned with the divinity of their own self and the spark and the divinity of everything that's unfolding, actually. I mean, today's Hayom Yoim is a Barashkocha Pratis. This is the Baal radical spiritual teaching, that there is a divine intentionality that vivifies every single thing that exists and that's happening to the smallest bacteria and furthermore every single last bit of it feeds into the grand cosmic scheme the grand the perfection of it all i mean to live inside of this view is like it's 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 to kind of fall right into lockstep with the divine symphony that's in fact playing you know, so it's like in reality, there's yeah, there's a divine symphony that's going on, and it's perfectly choreographed and perfectly orchestrated. But we show up over here, almost like our ears are stuffed up with wax. Maybe we have we we have trouble hearing uh, good pitch, and we're like, what's all that noise? You know, <laughs> we listen to the symphony. What's all that noise? What's all that ruckus? Right. So, and the game is to actually fine tune the hearing, the seeing, the awareness the relatedness to ourselves, the understanding of what's happening, until we just fall into lockstep and all of a sudden we're like, whoa, and we hear the music and we're no longer screaming and yelling, what's that noise? So we're no longer obstructing it, right? And so now it can just like seamlessly move through us and we can facilitate the furtherance of that symphony of that beauty in the world until there's a transformation of the entirety of consciousness, right? So that's my, my, my understanding. My understanding has come to be it's not a problem, it's the setup. So
0: basically, throughout everything that you were saying, which is extremely powerful, and it's and it's also so true. It's extre- It has this, you know, the way the way we talk about it. Sometimes it's an unrealistic, spiritual, non grasping kind of concept. But it does manifest itself into our lives. We sometimes turn a blind eye to it and say, "Oh yeah," you know, like all these ideas and all these concepts. But bringing it down into reality is the hard part. And there's this Jungian idea, which I really. I really like, and I use it also in my coaching. It's called circumambulation, which means potential presents itself in the present by things that you're interested in. So you're attracted to certain things in life, and that is where your potential lies. So I'm interested in going on a walk. There's potential there. Potential is basically the idea of everything and anything. I can be everything and anything. If only I would move forward into the things that I am interested in. And it's something that we tend to avoid. It's something that we tend to move back from because we're scared of, I don't really know what. There could be a million different things. But I think it's, we're afraid of pain. We're afraid to hurt ourselves. We're afraid to make ourselves less than what we currently are. And we spoke about this before. It's about, you know, taking a risk, jumping into the water. And it does seem like a risk, you know, like what if I do it? What if I really expose myself? And someone won't like it what if i expose myself and try to bring out my truest inner self and it's denied and it's being torn down by the hierarchies of the structure around us if it's school teachers if it's the cool kid in school if it's my parents if it's my older brother and to allow ourselves to expose ourselves like that it takes a lot of guts to do
2: that yeah i'm gonna go somewhere real deep now and i've been accused of saying stuff and writing like stuff on Facebook that's just like, people are just like, huh, what the heck are you saying? And then I have some other people that are like, oh my God, that's incredible, you know? So I kind of like, I will admit that I don't love the work that I need to put into myself to break an idea down, to make it accessible to more people. So that's on me, you know, I own that. But here's what I want to say. I myself was in therapy for five years. Okay. Trying to resolve and work through childhood traumas, you know, issues, uh, all kinds of stuff. At some point, I went to school and I got a degree in social work. And I was like, and I even got licensed, and I was going to become a therapist. In reality, I never practiced a day under the umbrella of social work and in the therapeutic context, a number of different reasons. But the reason why I share that is because with time, I I've, I've kind of began to become a little bit aware of the, the ways in which the therapeutic world, the language, the constructs, the ideas, the contexts, in fact limit me and constrict me and don't liberate. So I'm not condemning it. I'm just saying like for me in my journey, there was a time when it was like, okay, this no longer serves me. I'm looking for something beyond this. And to explain this a little more, when you say, you know, why I think a lot of us are scared. We're scared of looking bad. It takes a lot of courage. So this is a very therapeutic interpretation, a psychoanalytic interpretation. In other words, we say, okay, a lot of people, you know, they're holding back, right? There's this phenomenon. They're holding back from, like you say, just leaning into the potential that is being presented to them by virtue of the Hashkah by virtue of the circumstance, by virtue of what they're drawn to, by virtue of what's in front of them, by virtue of what they kind of, sense on an intuitive level this phenomenon the therapeutic or psychoanalytic way of going about it is why mm, people are afraid now where that leads us to is well why are people afraid right so it's like this endless rabbit hole of searching for the culprit it's almost as if there's a there's a pretense there's some culprit there's some victimizer some aggressor somewhere hidden somewhere and we have to keep asking the why question until we will finally catch him. So people don't do that because they're afraid and why they're afraid because they're gonna be not accepted. And why are they afraid of not being accepted? Because you know, and then you have the whole proliferation of psychoanalytic theory that has created such a fabulous smorgasbord and potpourri of possible interpretations and explanations of the ultimate culprit right That's if if you study any psychosocial theory or any theories of like development like and, and and the ongoing expansion of theory it's so much of it is like oriented around can can we can we can we just if we can just nail the first cause the you know the the ultimate culprit then we can finally get over all this stuff I'm not saying there isn't a value to that I'm not saying there isn't that isn't useful like I said I went to therapy for five years and during that time in my life, it really occurred to me that that would be beneficial to me. And it certainly was a cathartic experience. You know, a nice go-to therapy, and you get validated, and you get to analyze a lot of the whys behind how you're showing up and what's in your way. And, 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 and that analysis sometimes gives a person a greater sense of control over their reality, right? It's like, if I can understand what's going on with me, you know, I can feel a little more at peace. I can feel a little less like, just like, completely lost. I can feel like I have my bearings. I I feel like a sense of control and all that. And at the same time, a lot of it is conjecture. There's no way to know. Is it, is, is, it, is it because my teacher slapped me on the cheek or my father slapped me on the cheek? Is it because I got slapped on the cheek or on the toes? It's a lot of conjecture. It's a lot of projection based on a lot of theoreticals. It's an it's ongoing stab in the dark to try to nail, to try to, to try to really pin down some primary cause that can be like agreed upon with certainty and unanimously you know so that's number one it's a lot of it's a lot of pontificating it's a lot of conjecture and it can always change also you know in in the therapeutic process Six months in, you're like, oh, that's the reason why. And you feel so good. You feel liberated. And then like nine months later, you're like, yeah, but it's still going on. You're like, oh, must have been that was the reason why. You know, it can always shift because you're, you're, because you're projecting. You really are. You're projecting into your past. You're trying to associate the current orientation that you're stuck inside of to a particular incident. And there's no way to know. Also, I find that understanding the why is actually not so useful. Meaning in my experience, this is my personal experience. I'm not I'm not saying this is anyone else's experience. I'm just sharing me. In my experience, while understanding through psychoanalytic theory the whys of dysfunction, let's just say, or constrictions in all forms, well it gave me a greater sense of control. It's always a cathartic moment when it occurs to me, like oh, the aha moment. That's like That's kind of a form of pleasure in its own right. Also a sense of validation. You know, it's like now I like it's like it's like it validates me like, oh, here's the reason why it's not because I'm crazy. You know, it's not because I'm a nut job. There's a reason why, you know, so it kind of gives me back my dignity. Right. So this this process like has its benefits. But now what? I, I spent so much time in the idea that if I only figure out that why I'll be free. And what I've learned the hard way is that that's not true. It's not true. To live free takes something. It takes commitment to a particular path. It takes commitment to taking ownership and responsibility for your thoughts, for your spoken word, for your actions. It takes a commitment to seeing yourself as a fully responsible person. It takes a commitment to letting go of all victimhood. It takes a commitment to showing up in a very distinct way. Just because you know why... You're afraid, let's say, or just because you know that the fact that you're afraid is the reason why you're holding back from developing a particular talent or offering a certain gift or taking a certain risk, it doesn't automatically liberate. It doesn't automatically result or translate into what you would in fact love. So what happens for a lot of us is we get decoyed by the egoic pleasure of understanding why, and then we just—and it's, it's like getting conned. You know, it's like getting, it's like if you're going to like find a treasure, literally you're going to go into the West or some gold rush, you're going to go find gold. And there's some party going on along the way, like some beer party or I don't know, some, some, some festival. And you just, and you just go there and you just hang out there for a bunch of years, right? And you just just forgot that, you know, so there's this egoic, real egoic pleasure. When I say egoic, I don't mean that bad. I mean that, that, I mean the conceptual mind. The conceptual mind loves knowing the why, loves analysis, loves understanding, needs a sense of control. That's what I mean by the ego. I mean by the, that, that experience of ourself as being separate from the source and needing control and needing the understanding of things, you know, and everything that comes along with with, with analysis and, and, and the functions of, of, of leveraging concept and mind and linear thought and logic. But it's a cheap payoff. It's, 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 like a, it's like a fake messiah, you know? It's like, what do you really care about? Knowing why you're not bringing forth who you are, knowing why that spark is so dim and covered with clutter and you haven't yet you know, removed, or just being who you are. And the two are not the same process. The two are not the same process. That's what came up for me. In, it, it was elicited in me by, by, in response to what you said. I went to Moshe
1: Khan and we spoke about this in the first episode. And I was going through a lot, and he told me, just talk to your emotions. And I remember thinking, that's the most insane thing you could tell a person. Sit by yourself and talk to your emotions. And then I stopped, and I'm like, oh, my God. I sit down every single morning, and I meditate, and, I t- and I'm talking to my brain. Maybe I'm crazy, or maybe, maybe just everything's crazy. Maybe everything right has to be crazy for it to be right. Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah. In order for
0: things to be right, they have to be crazy. I do agree with that in a way. You know, there's a book that I want to write, which the point is that validation and understanding the self is extremely important. There is so much value to it. And the amazing tool, it's one of the amazing tools that we have and that allows us to grow if we use it in a way that allows us to grow. Meaning I could be there and understanding and explaining and meditating and and asking and getting closure for many different things in my life. You know, but if I don't actually... Allow myself to do something about it or allow myself to be something about it at the end of the day, in my opinion, it's a bit counterproductive. It's being too dependent on validation it's being it's being too dependent on allowing me to feel instead of allowing me to do and I've seen that many times you know clients you know clients come in and and they want to be validated, and I do validate them, but I also say, okay now what are we going to do about it what are we actually practically going to do about it are you going to be submissive to validation or are you going to be free to allow yourself to be who you are and those are two very important parts but like i just want to clarify people who who have addictions people who you know substance abuse addictions and some serious psychological trauma Therapy can work miracles. It can transform their lives and allow them to break through the really hard shells that they're going through. I do believe that at the end of the day, there needs to be a sense of more. And I I have this phrase on my Instagram, and I have said it before. The purpose of self-acceptance is self-growth. And the purpose of self-growth is to live meaningfully. One cannot exist without the other. Even more so, one is moot without the other mean to say like i can accept myself from today till tomorrow that's a fabulous thing And, and and it's extremely important but if it's not anchored if it's not connected with growth then you're losing something you're wasting something or even more so you can get stuck in a positive feedback loop we're just stuck in accepting for accepting for accepting for accepting and there's no continuation for that and there's no allowing ourselves to be more than that yeah, that's what came to mind when,
2: when you said what you said. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome. There's two things that I want to express. One is that I just want to distinguish that, that the work of self-awareness, the work of psychoanalysis, the work of psychotherapy, healing, recovery, I think it's fair to say that it's linear work, which is useful and important. And the now what leads a person off the linear cliff into the nonlinear realm, then now what? It's like a whole nother question. It's like the now what, and the what would I love? Who would I love to be? What would I love to create? And actually fulfilling on that is a function of not projecting into the past. Well, something happened to me in the past, and that's the reason why. It's a function not of asking why questions and analyzing, it's a function of being here now, right now. Right now, literally right now, as Chaim and Mati and myself were sitting here, and whoever's listening to this podcast right now, I'm gonna pause so that sinks in. I'm not talking about a concept. I'm talking about right now. There's a choice to be made. Who am I in this moment? All the psychoanalysis, all the self-awareness, all the self-inquiry, all the self-knowing is not a function and is not given rise to by the right now. It's a conversation that extracts you out of the right now and takes you back to the past and projects that those are the reasons why things are going on, okay? If you think about it, it's like it's a different realm. The creation, the creation of what you'd love, the creation of who you are, the making up, the making up of who you are, the fulfilling of what you'd love, the, the actualization of the potentiality that's presenting itself through the Hashgacha protest. It's a function of right now. Who am I being? Who am I being? Right now, in this right now moment, I can be fearful or I can be courageous. In this moment, in this moment, I can be trapped or I can be free. In this moment, it's a fleeting moment, but the practicing the, the power of this moment and that choice that's so perfectly accessible in any now moment begins to really call forth something new. A new way of being, a new way of experiencing reality, so that's one point that I just wanted to distinguish that it's it, it, the, the two works. one leads a person to the edge of the cliff, and then there's a whole it's like you got to jump off the cliff and you don't know how it's going to, and it's happened in a right now moment so there's a there's a there's a kind of what's it called a kind of okay a curve where all of a sudden the whole world that you were in and the way you knew it kind of changes because and 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 you got to operate from a different place. It's like right now. Can you be free right now? Right now? Yeah. Yeah. Whoever's listening. Yes. I, I mean right now. Yes, I'm asking you. Can you be free right now? This second? The answer is inescapably yes. Right now. You mean right now? Yes, right now. Right now I'm free. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, you're gonna be if you're the, but I'm gonna get home soon. Uh-uh, but you're ready, not right now. Practicing that is really a way. Talk about first step, talk about second step. I think this is a this is an ingredient in the recipe. That's something I want to say, and, but I also, that's point number one, but the second point is also important for me to emphasize. I was in therapy for five years. I don't know that I could be today where I am if not for that. Maybe? Evidently not. So why am I saying this? I'm saying this because I'm sharing this as a very meta perspective. I consider myself someone who's been through some severe trauma and the stage of trauma recovery, and then have outgrown the entire context of having been traumatized and having recovered from trauma into like a whole new, like awareness of what's possible of who I am almost on a level that like I look back and I'm like I was traumatized like everything that happened it was like so perfect these people didn't know better what was done to me had to happen to me for my neshama for my soul I don't even know why and I'm not justifying anything happening to anyone but in hindsight I'm just like I'm so clear today that it's all perfect unfolding and it's a choice to see it that way and like I'm free always was free can't ever not be free so So it's been a journey, and the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because it's very hard for someone who right now sees themselves as a trauma victim, as traumatized. It's very difficult to hear. It can feel hurtful and offensive and violating to hear anything that speaks to the constraints of that whole paradigm, the constraints of the paradigm of psychotherapy or psychoanalysis in general, the linear approach to things, the healing approach to things, can be very threatening. I just want to acknowledge this is a personal journey that I've been through. It's not a soapbox that I'm on. It's a personal journey that I've been through. And if someone is in that stage right now and that's what they're dealing with, great. Go do the work that is occurring, that's presenting itself for you to do at your current stage. But I also am a radical champion for a completely nonlinear possibility. There's such a thing as Gaula. There's such a thing as Yitzhias Mitraim. There's such a thing as Oikio be. There's such a thing as growing and transforming so radically that everything becomes recontextualized in your own awareness. And I'm a radical champion for that. I'm a radical champion for both sides of it. And it's a tightrope for me because I've so been there. If someone would have told this to me when I was in the throes of my like, therapeutic process, I would have been so angry. I would have written them off, I would have so, and probably did, because I probably did hear this, and I probably was so reactive. So it's, it's a practice for me to kind of like hold both. And we are always where we're meant to be. Today's how I am yet, you, you know? And, and we're all being led to where we need to end up.
1: No, I'm just like, I'm still being mind blown. My mind's in the middle of being, in the process of exploding.
2: Yeah, well, I just want to say, when I was in therapy, I really believed that the analysis that we were coming up with and the insight was the truth. Like I really knew. I'm saying as I grew, I realized like, how how could you really know? You know, I get that, you're connecting dots. What advice would you give yourself
0: before or in the middle of the process that would have allowed you to take the steps in order to grow, like looking at it in hindsight? What advice would you have wished
2: you would have given yourself? In other words, having 20-20 vision you know, what advice would I give myself? Like, given the fact that, that I was at that stage and therapy seemed to be the right path for me and all of that, but now 10, 15 years out, what advice would I, would I give myself that would have enhanced the experience or, or, or made it on a higher level for me? For me personally, I put too much faith in the therapist. Meaning I came in, like, r- telling myself, like, really, like, I'm really messed up. And, and I believed that I was so messed up that and the therapist is the normal one, and I on occasion I violated my own still small voice, my own intuition and, and and accepted something that the therapist was suggesting or proposing or even insisting on and that was that was that was hurtful to me that was that was not wholesome at all. so it's actually like the opposite like I was very all in. you see what I'm saying? It's different than what you were saying. I was really all in, but too much. But, but that's where I was then. Obviously, we're talking about, you know, what would you tell me? But that is important, I think, message for people. Like, okay, like you need some help. Got it. You know, it gets, things get real crazy when you believe that you're so nuts that only someone else can can know what's true for you and not yourself because you're so nuts. So whatever you know about yourself is really nuttiness. You know, that's a real twilight zone. Like that's like, that's like it's a real vicious catch 22 because you're going for help because you know you need help and you want help but you're like creating a whole situation where the help can actually cut your legs off from underneath you because you're now outsourcing yourself completely to someone else and and so it's it's a difficult balance because sometimes we do need to just be open to hear something from someone else because someone else is not biased like us and someone else can see things more clearly but but it's almost like if someone shows up to therapy really outsourcing their power to the therapist, it's very hard for them to, they're going to slow down their healing. It's going to take a while until they realize, shucks, I mean, I am crazy, but I'm not that crazy. You know, it's going to have to go a whole, but get a whole lot worse. It's going to have to get a whole lot worse. The therapeutic process is going to have to become so painful. I'll I'm like, ah, no, no, you know, fine, I'm crazy, but I ain't that crazy. You know, and finally, in that moment, one reclaims their own self. Which is essential so that's what i would in hindsight that's what i would tell myself like fits you got issues but go it a little easy you're not you're re- you're not essentially crazy that's that's what i would tell myself and 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 some others as well i would tell that too if they can hear it
0: yeah one of the things i pride myself hmm, one of the things that in my opinion is extremely important in in my coaching is that once we finish a four month package four month commitment a four month relationship, we take a break, and sometimes a client really wants to continue he's like, listen, we just four month we have so much progress let's let's do more and i say no let's 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 sort of take a break and the reason why I do that is because i my whole approach to coaching is that you don't need me, I don't want to see you again in the best sense possible, not that like you have more to grow like you don't have anywhere else to grow you do have so much more to grow but don't allow yourself to be dependent on me in order to grow and that's something that i have found extremely difficult and for such a long time in my life i have been dependent on something and in a way it is counterproductive to coaching when the client or when someone who comes and we sit down at a meeting or we have a conversation that they're so dependent on me and our relationship that we have because instead of just being dependent on society's outlook on me or what my friends will say or what my parents will say or what society will say, becoming dependent on what my coach is saying. And that's something that we wanna tear down because the only voice that matters is my own. And everything in life is arbitrary. What I'm good at isn't what you're good at. And that's okay, that's great. You have a better vocabulary than me. You play guitar better than me, but I am better at writing doesn't mean that one person is better, like black and white. Am I better than him? Is he better than me just because I get advice from someone? Does it mean that he is more intelligent than me? Well, let's start defining intelligence. Let's start breaking it down. No, no, no. Black and white. Who is better? Do I need you in my life in order to enhance my life? That whole approach is, it just gets you stuck in that loop. And it's toxic. And it's, again, it's a whole element of being dependent on something. And... Hopefully, God willing, we're going to break out from that.
2: I just want to say on the point that you just made a book title. The book is called If You Meet the Buddha on the Road, Kill Him. It is a phenomenal book for anyone who's in a helping relationship, any client of therapy, coaching, mentorship, whatever. It speaks to this point. It's a really beautiful book and helping really distinguish how what we're really all after is the discovery and the experience of the self, of the divine spark that's you, and uh, there's there's a way to hold that awareness, you know, as we go into those relationships. There's a great book if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, you know. The title is a giveaway in its own right, you know. And it's interesting because the Rebbe really pushed for this. You know that famous story where the woman comes by there and said, "Bring Moshiach, Rebbe. We need you to do it. We need you to do it." And the Rebbe's like, "Well, if I'm the Rebbe, I've spoken." You're going to do it, and you're going to do it, and you're going to do it. You know, a lot of people hear that as a demand, as an expectation. What they're saying is, don't outsource your power to anyone else. Start getting who you are. Start living from that place. That will do the job. That will do the job. That will create some transformation in this, in this place.
0: This conversation is just epic in itself. And towards the end of every episode, while we wind down, at the end of every episode we ask a couple of questions. So the first one that I would like to ask you is if you were interviewing yourself right now, what question would you ask yourself and answer it. All right, let me think. Let me go deep on this. If I
2: was interviewing myself right now. Wow, what an interesting question. I think it would be something like this. It would be a two-part question. Something like, how did you how did you become who you are? And the second part question would be do you like do you think that like the way it comes to me is, is it normal? But what I mean to ask is, like, is it really like you think it's like possible for like other people? Because like, like you see it as a, like a realistic possibility for people. And what I would answer, what I would answer, that I think that at at, at the heart of it is a desire. The way I've become who I am today, and what I'm becoming. Through intense desire. Interestingly, I think that's like the first chapter in Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. It's about burning desire. But burning desire, a burning desire to live free, to live in love with every living being, to live in consonance with the self, with creation, a burning desire and radical certainty that it's possible. That's how I've become how I've become. Burning desire and absolutely no one will ever, ever convince me that, 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 that the ultimate possibility of goodness is not an option and not available. Never in a million years, I'm not available for that. It's just not non option for me. Absolutely not. Because if that's the case, then there's no, no point in living. If I'm alive, that represents to me that the possibility for the absolute goodness is completely available. And that's it. A burning desire and absolute certainty and conviction, which is made up, not because it says it somewhere. Not because someone told me because I say so. And the answer is that that is available, I think, to anyone. If, you, if you're if you just willing to put your stake in the ground and say, fine, I say that X is possible. I say that I can become who I want to be. I say that healing is a real option. I say that freedom is accepted. And I desire it and I will leave no stone unturned until I get it. It's that, it's that Positioning oneself in that way that will do it. That's, I think, what I would ask and what I would answer. Wow! Incredible.
0: Three bucks. Advice. huh No. Okay. No,
1: just do three bucks. What? Well, so you do it? No, you do it because I have to wrap it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's gonna be weird.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Fits. That's that's yeah. I felt that that wasn't just you know just a question. It came from a deep place and an honest place. The next question that we
2: ask. Oliver, I guess, at the end of the episode is... Can I just say one more thing about that? Yeah. I just want to say one more thing about that. To me, the Rebbe is an access point for this. Why? Because to me, that's who he was. He showed up in this world, and he said, Moshiach is an actual possibility, and I'm going to live and die by that. That's what made him the Rebbe. And it wasn't because it says it, because it always said it. It always said it, and there were 3,000 years of Jewish leaders. The Rebbe showed up and took ownership of it and said, I don't care, it says it. It's so because I say so. I will live by that and I will die by that. And that's the end of it. And you know something? It is precisely that way of showing up to the world and to life that actually creates those cracks in consciousness, those openings, and allows something to come. To me, that is that is the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have so much to
0: say on that. and well, so much to say on what you just said, but we do have to... Are, are we going to book our second,
1: second one now for five weeks? Because <laughs> I heard you're very hard to book. What's that? I think you're very hard to book, so we have to book the second to book. So do we have of... next podcast now for five months?
0: <laughs> Probably makes sense, but anyway. So as we, so the next part that we're gonna ask, <clears throat> yeah, let's from the beginning. I have so much to add on that, and we can discuss this for the next four hours freely. But sadly, we're a bit limited in time, not limited in you know in in, in our state of being, but in our time. So the next question that we ask is, what are your... What what three books would you recommend someone to read? And you can also explain why, if you like. I know it's a tricky one. We're really hitting you hard with questions today, huh?
2: I can tell you one.
0: Just one? Yeah.
2: Yeah. All right, which one? I can tell you one. The rest would just be... This one is because of the profound experience that I had in reading it. The rest, you know, it's like coming from my head. Read this, read that, you know. If I would, you know... One the one book is a book called Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Come again. The title of the book is Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Okay, explain. I'm not gonna explain anything. The so why explains it now.
1: The why you'd recommend
2: that. Yeah. Hopefully,
1: it should explain a little. Bit. Well,
2: but I, the reason why I, that is my one book is because of the the experience that I had reading it, and that's my why. You want to share it so now we're gonna to
1: have to just get the oh. book Wait, okay. it's a short
2: book super four chapters hmm what is it about what's the idea it's the job you can you can you can find that on youtube you can you can it's easy hmm. jonathan livingston seagull someone asked me what's the book the one book the book that i would recommend three i can't even i can't you know i would have to think quite a bit longer to come up with another two hmm. that book to me had a really created some access for me to some Amazing stuff, and Mm -hmm. uh, it's a short book. It's a story, Mm -hmm. and it's four chapters. Actually, the original edition only has three chapters. The author had written a fourth chapter and shelved it. Okay, forty years later, in 2012, he unearthed that fourth chapter that he had forgotten about, and actually published it. So, if you buy the book today, you know the latest editions, it has the fourth chapter, which is extremely, extremely potent and powerful. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the first three are epic, and and the fourth is is amazing. That, that book was very, very profound for me. It might not be profound for you. It might not be profound for people who read it. You know, I can't. It was, that's just me. But that's, that's the book that I recommend. I'm, I'm a very experiential person. I'm, I'm bright, but I, 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 I want to experience life. Mm-hmm. I want to experience vitality. I want to experience the moment. I want to experience love. I want to experience relationships. I want to experience the divine. So that's why I don't have like, you know, that's why I don't want to just, you know, recommend books like I'm some expert on something. I want to suggest a book that that to me was an experience. Hmm. Pause it for a second. Other books are too controversial.
0: Recommending only one book. Also breaking the rules and also keeping us in
2: the mystery. Oh, that's great. (laughs) That is sweet. I think that sums up who you are. Let me just think for one more minute if there's some other book that comes to me. I mean, we do have, how long do we have left? Six minutes. Six minutes. minutes. All right, because then we do a rapid. Okay, let me just say one more minute. All right.
0: Because the rapid is the most important part of the podcast.
2: That's it. That's what comes to me. All
0: right, awesome.
2: Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. But can I say (laughs) one more thing? I'll be honest. The answer, there are so many books in the world, right? It's impossible to me that God is on the other side of, you know, learning books. It's impossible. God must be here. And, and that's that's something that I live by, you know. Sometimes people worship books as if the answer is on the other side of information. Nah, that's an idea, and it can be constricting.
1: Okay. So, for those of you who, get, who actually know me, I've been working on something for the past two years that have been incredible. I've been working on doing things that scare me. Hmm. I've built the entire list. I probably went back on the list a few times. One of the things on the list is I always have to be prepared. It scares me when I'm not prepared. So... I started with the rapid questions, coming to podcasts unprepared with rapid questions, even though I should have been prepared. First time I forgot, and then it scared me, and I was like, you know what? Let's work on this fear. So I really wrote these, like, middle of our conversation. Basically, the five rapid questions you just have to answer, the first thing that comes to your head. First one, what's more professional, cardigan or suit? suit. Best advice you ever given? Love yourself. What's the worst part about being a redhead?
2: (laughs) Ah! Oh, gosh. Oh, I don't know any worse parts about it. That's a funny one.
1: What's the most relaxed place you've ever been?
2: In an Airbnb. Most, I don't know most, but this is pretty. This is up there. In a particular Airbnb in Phoenix, Arizona in November.
1: And last one is city or mountain?
2: Mountain.
1: Thank you so much, Fitz, for coming. This was such an incredible thing. Thank you for just being here. Thank
2: you for sharing what you shared. We really appreciate that. I'm grateful that you invited me. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share with myself. I'm grateful for you receiving me. And for anyone who listens, you know, I'm grateful for your listening, for receiving me. And I love you and I bless you on this very day. That's it. Thank you so much and have a great day.